And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to reflect on what Sue's just read to us, let us pray. Holy Spirit, who inspired the authors and editors of what we have just read, come and inspire our hearts afresh this morning, that we might learn of you and follow you more closely. Amen. During my ordination training, I did a placement in Southampton. It meant that I was fairly regularly walking down the road that runs along the back of the West Quay shopping center. Anything was that that was in 1998, and West Quay was simply a dirty great big hole in the ground. To borrow from Genesis 1, 1 and verse 2, the site was Tohu Wabahu, formless and void. If I'd set up a time-lapse camera, I would have seen the space of West Quay being separated from the rest of the land around as the walls went up. I'd have seen West Quay separated from the waters above as the roof went on. I would have seen vital supplies of water, gas, electric, and IT being funneled into the building. But at that stage, from the outside, everything would have appeared to have stopped. The building had all of its functions, but none of the functionaries to make it come alive. If I turn the camera inside of that building, I would have seen that the functionaries were being put in place. Waterstones, John Lewis, M&S, Build-A-Bear. I'm quite sure how that one got onto the list, but it's there, and so on. And at last, the human functionaries were put in place, the shop workers and the customers. And finally, West Quay achieved its purpose as a shopping center. That's the story of the creation of West Quay. 
I haven't gone into any of the technical details about the building materials that we used or the construction techniques or the science behind it. But I think it's a good functional description of the creation of West Quay. And as we saw in the video we showed last week, days one to three of Genesis chapter one describe the basic functions being created. The framework, if you like, days four to six are the fitting out. The putting in place of the functionaries to make the creation live. All done with pizzazz, as the poet Annie Dillard puts it beautifully. If we were living in the ancient Near East, our origin stories would all be of that functional type. So what the writers here are doing is not unknown in the culture to which they were writing and in which they were writing. About to what Simon was saying, we'll touch on this a bit more in a minute in the video just now, about getting our heads around some of a different culture that we're working in. Now for me, the days here are just simply a literary device for telling the story. They're not a 2024, 24 hour day. That may disappoint some of you who will probably want to come and, and, and nab me afterwards and disagree vehemently with what I've just said. I haven't got time to go into the different interpretations this morning. We will have a study evening in March and that's going to be an easier place to look at some of the different ways in which people have interpreted here because we'll be in a, a far more interactive situation than just me at the front speaking. However important the relationship of Genesis 1 is to the scientific story of origins for our apologetics, the debates can so often distract us from letting this chapter speak to us as scripture and letting God speak to us. We get sidetracked onto this, that, and the other ways in which things relate. I think John Goldingay is right. He starts his commentary on Genesis by reminding us of those words of St. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is given to encourage us in our faith and to help us to grow in righteousness. And Genesis 1 to 3 is no different to the rest of Scripture in that point of view. So how can days 1 to 3 help us to grow? I want to look at each of the days and then just do some, some drawing together at the end. So on day 1, I wonder how good are you at getting out of bed on these winter mornings when it's still dark? I keep longing for that, that bit in the paper which says sunrise to actually begin to move a bit earlier so that I'm actually waking up and getting up in the daylight rather than the dark. I find that I just disappear back under the covers again when it's dark. Day one with the separating of light from darkness is telling us something far more than the creation of light. It's telling us about the start of time. With all of our light sources and our timepieces that we have around today, I think we tend to forget that for millennia, the understanding of time 
was linked to the coming and going of daylight, which meant you had a different length day depending on which part of the year you were in. Quite how that applied in the Arctic or the Antarctic, I'm not too certain, but, uh, but significantly, I think this opening passage of Genesis, as we read it through, even just the bit we're looking at at the moment, time occurs on three different occasions. It's here with its creation. Howard Mello will look at it next week in terms of the role of the lesser light and the greater light in the sky in regulating time. And then on day seven, we find it with the use of Sabbath. In Hebrew thought, if something occurs three times, that's like standing up a, a big sign in front of you saying, stand up, take notice, this is important. And so I think that's true here. God has created time. He's given it to us as gift, not a slave driver. So how will you use time this year? Remember, you can never save time. It just gets used for something else. And then day two, we find the separating of cosmic space. My, my word for it anyway, in that, in that sense. But here, welcome to the amazing world of the biblical cosmos. And we are really into actually having to understand some of the culture to make sense of these words here. One of my friends often used to say to me, Christians have problems with the Old Testament because they think the ancient Hebrews were like us, but with tea towels around their heads. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we are going back into a different culture, a different worldview, not least in the area of cosmology. Note that I said different, not wrong. Failure to recognize this difference in culture as we read these verses contributes so much to the so-called science versus religion debate. I guess that even within this congregation, we will have been taught different things about cosmology. The idea of galaxies, plural, didn't really come about until Edwin Hubble's work in the 1930s. Before then, everything was seen as one big galaxy. At school in the 1960s, I was taught of the steady state theory of the universe. The Big Bang was still looked on with a bit of suspicion at that stage as being a theory of origins. That's the nature of science. As more observations, as more experimentation goes on, so theories are tested and are discarded or modified. Intriguingly, Fred Hoyle, who was one of the main proponents of steady state, wrote on one occasion that the Big Bang theory of an origin was the biggest threat he found to his atheism. Sorry, that's a bit of a lengthy, uh, a lengthy introduction to say that when we come to day two, we must read it through the scientific understanding that existed at the time. It was understood that there were waters both above and below. 
It's a common sense point of view, a bit like our sunrise and sunset. It rains, so there must be water above. There are springs, so there are waters below. It doesn't rain all the time, unless it's been the past six weeks. So there must be some form of cosmic umbrella, maybe with some holes that can be opened and closed to let the water in from time to time. The text in, in, in Genesis here says, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. Now, I challenge you to go across the English translations on, on this one because they're a mess, basically. Some describe the vault as, as being firmament, an expanse, quite what that means, I'm not sure, as a dome, which perhaps makes more sense. And God calling the vault sky also says God calls the vault heaven. And nobody's really quite certain how that was viewed in terms of, of, of that expanse or that dome. Gordon Wenham in his commentary says quite how the Old Testament conceives the nature of the vaultal firmament is less than clear. But it's understood that there is something there which acts as an upper limit. In visual terms, if we're an earthbound observer and looking up, that separation from the waters above is that outer limit within which the non-earthbound parts of creation sit above the earth's surface. Between the earth and this vault, there is a place for clouds, a place for the stars, for the sun and the moon, a place for the birds, as we shall see next week. All of that may sound strange to our ears, but would it be any stranger than a scientist in a hundred years' time, perhaps, laughing over our descriptions of dark matter and dark energy? God begins to put the functions in place for his purposes of his creation. And then on day three, he separates terrestrial space. Two instructions, basically, are given here. One is another separation, to separate between sea and land. And then the vegetation is called on to grow and multiply. The waters and the land, both are needed for a thriving earth. Certainly if the intention is that it is to be populated with animals, otherwise we'd all be fish. Again, we find that simple phraseology that gets used. God said, and it was so. Come back to that towards the end. Our current science would want to talk about the place of the tectonic plates moving to and fro, creating the continents and the seas in between. But that separation of land and water. And then the vegetation appears. This isn't the description of a global seed bank being made. The vegetation mentioned as such that it will provide food for whatever comes next. And that vegetation is to be self-reproducing. In other words, there's not to be a new act of creation for each new generation of plant. 
And potentially, I guess, that allows for natural selection and evolution to take place. As on most of the days, we're told that what was made or called forth was good. But what does good mean in this context? You've got a question which hints at this in the notes for the small groups this week. But I want to comment on it, particularly in the context, I think, of what we find on day three. In English, we use that word good in a whole variety of different ways. Here are three of them. Something can be good ethically. We talk about somebody doing a good deed. Something can be good aesthetically. That's a good painting. And in Genesis 2, we're told that the trees of Eden are good to look at. And something can be good because it fulfills the purpose for which it was made. If you have a good chair at home, it's probably the one that's most comfortable for you to sit in. A carpenter constructs a good joint. It keeps the object of furniture together despite the knocks and scrapes it's going to get over years of use. We've noted that in days one to six, we have a functional description of creation. And I suggest that the key understanding of good in this chapter is that something has been made fit for purpose. Fit for purpose. Now, there may be other ways of good that we want to look at it in that way, but I think that's the primary one. So yes, the separation of land and water fulfills the function for which it was made. But given the power, for example, of plate tectonics, is good the adjective we'd want to use? Think of Pakistan over the past few days with the earthquake there, or Japan last month, or Iceland in the recent weeks. Or the sheer power of a recent Indonesian earthquake, which I'm told measurably moved the location of Everest. Not by much, but enough for the, for the, the delicate instruments to be able to detect. And we know what happens when those plates move like that and the impact that they have. Is they good? Yet it is at those places where the plates meet that important minerals will leach through into the sea and elsewhere. It's through past volcanic events that the soil in Kosoro is so rich that Kosoro can act as the breadbasket Kampala. Plant a walking stick in the evening and it will be a tree by morning, is one of the local sayings. Or so they tell us Dunmazungas when we go there anyway. <laughs> and as for floods, well, we have seen the devastating effect of those over the past weeks in our own country. But for millennia, the natural annual Nile flood was the means of feeding Egypt. A good creation. One commentator wrote, God and his creation do not cease to be good because the spider eats the fly. 
And how do we react when we see Simba eating Bambi? I think Howard's going to touch a bit more on some of that next week when he preaches then. But if we assume that good means fit for purpose, where does that leave us in terms of the impact of natural disasters around the world today? Surely the challenge for us is to grow in righteousness and arrange things so that the poorest have the same protection as the rich when natural disasters hit. The refugees on the salt marshes of Bangladesh even with Katrina in New Orleans, it was the poorest who suffered most. What are those who moved into those shoddy cheap flats in Antakya in Turkey this time last year, where the building regulations have been ignored? Part of our growth in righteousness is promoting justice in those particular areas. I'll certainly be interested to hear how you got on in your discussions this week on your understanding of good in this chapter. But for me, as I say, I think it means it's fit for purpose. The original writers had no problems about doing that and writing that God saw that it was good. So days one to three, functions being put in place, ready for functionaries to come. But I want just to highlight four things, I think, that come again from this passage about the nature of God. First of all, that God is outside of creation. He's speaking it into being. And if God is outside, it means he isn't bound by creation, so he can intervene if he so chooses. And surely isn't that the ground of much of our praying? That we believe God is a God who can act a God who can change things, who can step in. And that understanding of God as one who is outside of creation is a marked difference of the biblical account from the other ancient Near Eastern myths that are around. However much the similarities are there, this is one of the big differences. God is outside of creation. That's also a challenge to the scientific narrative we're fed with all the time, where we're told that we are trapped by our genes and by our environment, and there's no way you can change. We are not without hope, because God is outside of creation. Secondly, God is powerful. God said, and it was so, Surely that gives us an encouragement to pray when we find ourselves in almost unimaginable difficult situations. We're not too certain as to when these chapters were put together. But I want you to imagine that you are in exile in Babylon. You've been lamenting before God. You've been crying out from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. How can we sing the songs of God in a strange land? Look at the mess we're in. It's impossible. And imagine somebody then coming to you and beginning to read Genesis 1 of the counter-testimony that that is giving 
to what everybody is saying, you're rubbish, you've lost it. Here is a God who is big and strong and powerful. Surely it can be a counter-testimony to the rubbish our culture teaches us to, that God is powerful and can act. Thirdly, that God is interested in matter. He sets up the land and the seas. He sets up the environment around us. As one astrophysicist and theologian wrote, matter matters to God. So often we slip into that thinking that God is only interested in spiritual things, forgetting that he's interested in material things too, like creation care. It's interesting that in Colossae, when the Colossians started to over-spiritualize everything, that Paul takes them back to the reality that in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Yes, God is interested in matter. And then finally, that God brings into being an ordered creation. Touched on that a bit last week. This doesn't mean it's deterministic. Job had to find that out the hard way. But another scientist theologian in his commentary writes, for all of creation, life is one great adventure. The only image that came to mind when I read those words um, a couple of years back was one of those Pixar animations, you know, Ice Age or one one of those. And this great adventure that's there for us. And it's there for us today as part of the scientific enterprise is to enjoy it. As someone with a maths background, I rejoice in that orderedness, even in quantum uncertainty and chaos theory. It means we can investigate. It means that scientific method works because we have a creation that is ordered. God is outside of creation and can come in. God is powerful and is able to act. God is interested in matter as much as spirit. And God brings order into being. How much we long for those things in our own lives, perhaps. Let's take this from these these verses here and apply it to ourselves and rejoice in this God who we worship and who has made us. At the end of day three, the functions are all in place. Let the fitting out begin. But that's next week. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you speak creation into being. Thank you for the image this gives of your power, of your distinctness from what you have created. Thank you that you are interested in all of our lives, not just the spiritual bits. And thank you that you have the power to bring order out of confusion. 
Lord, may we know that as much in our own lives as we read of it in the foundation of the universe. Help us to recognize your goodness and your greatness and never to stop praising you for it. Amen.